Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 12 through 14. But so that we have just a bit of context for the start of our passage, let's turn together and look at Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. This is the very word of the living God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative in your life and mine. Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would bind your word around our hearts, that you would guide us, that you would protect us, that you would equip us by means of your most holy word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Has it ever seemed to you that in your life there have been circumstances that have gone beyond disappointing or difficult and it almost seems like someone is out to get you? Someone, perhaps, who is not a friend of yours. Or perhaps even at a time it seems that God himself is somehow out to get you. That he is punishing you for some sin that you have not confessed. Or he is dealing with you in a way in which you go from one difficulty to the other to the other. And you see no reason or purpose in it. And you wonder when God will finally stop and then use you the way you want to be used. An example of this could be the life of a man that many of you may know. His name was David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a bright, young, evangelical minister in training. He had zeal. He had knowledge. He had the ability to study. He had thought of carrying the Word of God out, not just in the church, but perhaps even 
throughout the hinterlands of what was then the American colonies. But something happened to David Brainerd. He was caught at university making a statement that was condescending and spiteful of another student. And because of that, he was expelled from school. And so all of his dreams of being a minister, of being a pastor in God's church, seemed to go up in smoke. Well, he decided that he would continue to push on. And so even though he couldn't be a minister, he decided to be a missionary to the American Indians. And he went out to the frontier. He went out to learn their language and to minister to them. And he was met with difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. He became ill frequently. He was what we might have called a sickly man. And it hindered his work in the progress of the gospel. And then at one time, he was staying with a friend of his, who you might also know. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And he took a fancy to Jonathan's daughter. And they fell in love, and they were to be married, except for at that point in time, David came down with a very serious illness. So serious that not only he, but his bride-to-be died of it. Standing back and looking at this, we might say, why did God allow this to happen? David could have been so useful in the service of the gospel and the church. He could have built up missions. He could have worked with the church. He could have married into the family of the greatest theologian of America. And together they could have seen the church rise to new heights. What was God doing in the midst of this? Because, you see, we look at that from one perspective. What we don't see is the man in deep Africa who is about to give up missions work but is encouraged by reading David's diary. We don't hear of those who are encouraged hearing his story, who are pushed on to do missions work. We don't see all that God has. Paul is explaining this phenomenon to the Philippians in the text that we're looking at this morning. You see, because the Philippians were very concerned for Paul. Paul was in prison, as we'll see in a minute. And they were wondering what God was doing in the work of building up the kingdom. Paul wanted the Philippians to see the priority of the gospel in his life and their lives. And so I'd like us to see three things from our text this morning. First, I would like us to gain a gospel focus. That our lives would be focused by the gospel. And then I would like us to see gospel favor that can occur in places where we would have never guessed it. And then finally, we will see the gospel fearlessness that comes from that focus and that favor. Let's look first then at gospel focus by looking at verse 12. Paul begins a new section in his letter right after this prayer. He gives a bit of a report to the Philippians. But it's not your ordinary report. As a matter of fact, many commentators bemoan the fact that Philippians is not four or five chapters. That there are not uh, addition, excuse me, that it's not five or six chapters. That there are not additional information about where Paul was at this time. What he was doing. How much time he spent with the Philippians. More details we want. But Paul breaks right in in his informational report into what is important. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
You see, he knows that the Philippians were concerned about him. He wants them to see the circumstances that he is in. And so he addresses them tenderly using this term brothers again. He will use it over and over again to them. As we know, this church was very dear to Paul. And so he says, I know that you are concerned about me. I'm glad you are. You're wondering how I'm doing. We haven't been in contact except for lately because I've been imprisoned. But I want you to know that I'm thinking of you and that I'm well and that my circumstances are actually quite good as far as the gospel is concerned. You see, Paul's attitude here is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of his difficulties, he's concerned about others' comfort and love. It's just like our Lord Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed in his time of greatest need and difficulty, he spent his time encouraging the disciples. This is the mind of one who loves another. And so this attitude of Paul's flows from his love. We looked at this in verse 7, that he holds the Philippians in his heart. But because he loves them, he will not lie to them. He will not sugarcoat things. And so he says, I want you to know about what's going on. He doesn't spin a yarn. He doesn't try and say, well, I want you to know what's going on. Prison's not so bad. The food is better than I thought it would be. And the clothing, well, it's not as drab as it could be. No, he wants to tell them what is important and significant to him in the midst of his circumstances. He wants to remind them of where he has been and what God is doing. And so what he wants to do is recall to them his past. That's when he says, I want you to, <coughs> I want you to know that what has happened to me Now, what has happened to Paul? If you look here in your Bibles, it's a few bland words. What happened to me? That could be anything. Let me flesh that out a bit for you if you don't recall the last quarter of Acts. What has happened to Paul is that he has wanted to go to Rome for some time to do church planting and build up the church. And he was unable to go. He was hindered at various circumstances. And he's just ready to get to go off on another missionary journey to Rome and Spain. And there's an attack on him in Jerusalem. It's something he expected. It's an attack from the Jews that is so fierce that the only way that he can possibly be protected is to be placed under arrest. You see, they didn't have the witness protection program in Rome. The safest place you could be was on the other side of Iron Bar's Kind of like in the old westerns you see. You put the guy in there so he doesn't get lynched because the bars serve to keep others out more than to keep him in. That's how dangerous it was for Paul. And so he is attacked and he is put in prison. And if you have ever been involved with the law, either with a traffic ticket or a lawsuit, and you know the truism that the wheels of justice grind slowly, you don't need to tell that to Paul. Because Paul sat in prison for not one, but two years, just waiting for a trial. He hadn't been convicted. He sat in prison in Caesarea, which is an area a bit north of Jerusalem, for two years. He did have several hearings 
You may recall he went before Felix. And he went before the governor Festus. And he even went before King Agrippa. And there's something that's much in common with each one of those hearings. In each of those hearings, Paul spent a very little bit of time saying, I'm innocent. And the bulk of his time saying, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been raised from the dead. He is God. And by the way, you have to repent. And you have to believe. Paul used these judicial hearings as preaching stations. That's what he did during the two years he was in Caesarea. Well, he finally appeals to Caesar and he gets out of jail to go to Rome to get a trial. And guess what happens then? His ship is shipwrecked on Malta. And he barely survives along with the crew. And they have to figure out then how to get from Malta over to Rome. It seems that one disaster after another has hit Paul. And now he's sitting in a prison in Rome, a place where he will sit for yet another two years, where he will write several epistles. So what I want you to understand is what happened to Paul is not he went out to lunch, he took a trip, he wrote some letters. No, he lived a life of incredible hardship for the gospel. This is the circumstances that Paul would have a see. But the next thing we need to do is understand these circumstances. The next thing about gospel focus is understanding what the circumstances are doing, what the Lord is doing within them. And so in this phrase, what has happened to me, Paul is recalling all of this history. Because you see, this is what has made him the man that he is today, the minister that he is today. God has used these circumstances that have happened to make him the pastor that he is. And he says that, well, what has happened to me in all of these circumstances is the advancement of the gospel. Now, again, knowing the history, that's the last thing we would think of. We would expect Paul perhaps not in a tone of whining or moaning, but to at least explain his imprisonment, his difficulties, his illnesses, his hurts. But Paul goes right past his life to the gospel. You see, all of these things that happened weren't about Paul and his difficulties. Paul's focus is clearly on what God is doing in the gospel. You see, when you ask Paul, how is he doing? His answer is, This is what's happening with the gospel in my ministry. When someone asks you, how are you? What's life been like lately? Do you use that as an opportunity to vent, to complain, to moan, to seek sympathy? Or do you use it as an opportunity to say the wondrous things that the Lord is doing in your life, even if they're hard? How the Lord is faithful. How the Lord is with you. You see, Paul wants to let the Philippians know this because they are discouraged by events. They lost contact with Paul when he was in prison. They don't exactly have U.S. mail services to and from Roman prisons. And finally now they are back in touch because Epaphroditus has been sent. They know what is going on now. And Paul wants to encourage them. He says, listen, you've been worried about me. But you needn't have been. Because what's happened in all of my life is that the gospel is advancing. 
That would be a great comfort to them, wouldn't it? But the challenge to us is that we don't always live in the time when the letter comes from Paul. Sometimes we live in the period up to that, don't we? Where we ask, what's going on? And God doesn't show us. We wonder why these difficulties have come our way or why a burden has been laid on a friend of ours. And so we must ask ourselves, what do we do if we don't see the purpose of God in difficulties? How do we handle that? How do we go on from day to day? I think the answer is that we don't need to fully understand Christ's purpose in order to trust him. Because, you see, that's what trust is. Faith is indeed the evidence of things unseen. Our trust for the Lord Jesus Christ should not wax and wane depending upon how we perceive He has blessed us. No, our trust in Jesus should be greatest when we don't know where to turn, don't know what to do, and don't know where we're going. Because then, only the Lord Jesus Christ can guide us. And so Paul says, I need you to understand that the gospel is advancing. Now, when he's saying that, he doesn't mean things are going okay. This word is a very specific word. This is the kind of word that an entrepreneur likes to hear about his joint venture investment. It means that the business is up 40, 50, 60, 100%. That prosperity is found in what's going on. That progress is at hand. That success is found. Paul uses a word to describe the gospel that gives to us the, the feeling, the thought, that what is happening is beyond anything Paul could even have imagined. The gospel is going forward in power. And you'll notice again, just as he did earlier, Paul uses shorthand with the Philippians. He says that the advance of the gospel is happening. He knows that they share one heart. They share one faith. They share one truth. And so he doesn't need to explain to them all of the details of the gospel at every opportunity. They would know that the advance of the gospel includes the fact that sinners are coming to know Jesus Christ. That the church is being built up and having new ministry opportunities. That the truth is being defended and confirmed. That love is being shown among the body of believers there. The Philippians would know that the gospel is shorthand for all of that. And Paul also answers for them the question that might be in their minds. You see, Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, when he says really here, he doesn't mean it in the sense that it's real as opposed to fake. He means it the way when someone gives you a piece of news that is so unexpected, you look at them and you go, really? No way. I don't believe it. That's how shocking it is. You see, Paul says what you would think would be the most difficult of circumstances, the most trying of times, the most down of periods is actually a time of progress and blessing. Now, Paul says something very specifically, and I want you to see it. He says, what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He doesn't say that the gospel has advanced 
in spite of what has happened to me. Because you see, that is often how we think of adversity. We think when we meet adversity, we have to tighten our belts, lace up our shoes, and blitz on through. We have to get through in the midst of all the difficulties. You've done that, right? You had to put something together at the house, and you misplaced the instructions. Then you can't find the right screwdriver. Then you lose a piece. Then you get interrupted by a phone call. And finally, it gets put together, and it's not because of those things. It's in spite of those things. But you see, that is not Paul's attitude here. Paul says the gospel is progressing exactly because of the adversity that I am faced with. Isn't that a blessing that warms your heart? That God can use times of pain, struggle, and loss as a benefit for the advancement of the gospel. That God can be working not just in spite of difficulties that come our way, but through them and in them to bring himself glory. You see, Paul knew the truth of the matter. That the gospel is not about success or money or health. There are some that will tell you that you will know if the gospel is advancing if no one is sick. If someone is sick, there's not enough faith. You'll know the gospel is advancing if everybody has money because God blesses through the gospel. But that's not the case. The gospel is not about being rich, being healthy, and being happy all the time. The gospel is about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ all of the time. In sickness and in health. In poverty and in riches. That is the progress of the gospel. And so if today you are waiting for things to turn around to find out if God is real, Paul is telling you to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, now is the time to be united to Him by faith, to believe what He offers, not when you get a little bit more money in your retirement account or when you get a clear report from the doctor or when your kids get into the best schools. Now is the day of salvation, says Paul. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, now is the time to trust Him and praise Him. When times are difficult, when you are stressed out, when you're not sure what next month will bring, that is the gospel. So Paul says, I want you to know that this is what has happened with the gospel. And then he says, I want you to know also that there are results from this advancement of the gospel. Specifically, there are two. The first I want you to see, the first result, Paul says, is that the gospel has granted favor to me and to the message amongst those that you would think very unlikely. Look here at verse 13. Paul says, it is advanced, the gospel has advanced so that, with the result that, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul says the gospel is advancing and it is persuasive. He takes the time to tell the Philippians to remind them about the persuasiveness of the gospel. Now, this is something that we need desperately today. As we watch news reports and listen to the radio and read magazines, and talk to people, it seems that the gospel has lost its oomph. That we have to hold on to the ground that we have now and hope 
that the world, the society, and the secular nation doesn't take it over. We're definitely on defense. Paul says, no. The gospel is always on offense. The gospel is always going out to others. It is always persuasive. And as a result, the gospel is not hidden. He says, I do not cower in a corner with the gospel. He says, the gospel is advancing so much that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Now, how would this happen? It gives you a little bit of insight into the personality of Paul. Paul was under house arrest in Rome. They didn't have enough evidence or they weren't as concerned about him that they were going to throw him in a prison. So they placed him for a period of time under house arrest. Now, back in Roman days, kids, they did not have things that were electrical. Today, if you're under house arrest, they put a little bracelet on your foot or your wrist. And if you leave the house, it beeps something crazy and the police come to the door. They didn't have that back in Roman times. So they used the low-tech version. What they did was, if you were a prisoner, they got a chain, and they chained one end to you, and they chained the other end to a soldier. And you went into the bedroom, the soldier went into the bedroom. You went over to the bathroom, the soldier went over to the bathroom. You went to go get something to eat, the soldier went to go get something to eat. And what would happen is, this would be 24 hours a day. And the soldiers would go in four shifts of six hours each. I imagine the night shift was quite boring because you'd have to sit on a chair next to Paul's bed. No light to read by. But this is what you did, and you were paid well by the Roman government. So now, if you can imagine, if you were a soldier chained to Paul for six hours straight, what you were going to hear. Now, you were not going to hear, this chain's too tight. Oh, I wish it was colder in here. Oh, I wish I could be free. Oh, I wish I could see the people in Jerusalem. No, you would hear, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what he's done for me. You would hear the six-hour version of what we see in Acts to Felix and Festus. And you know Paul. The soldiers maybe would talk back. One of them would say, well, you know, I've got this girlfriend and we're living together. And Paul would say, you need to repent of that. God says this in his word. Let me tell you about or the soldier might say, you know, I was able to get out of next week's duty. I lied to my boss. Wait a minute. You can't lie to your commander. Let me tell you about the demands of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul would 24 hours a day. Well, he probably slept at least four or five hours. So let's figure 18 to 20 hours a day. Paul is literally a preaching machine. And so it wouldn't be just the same four soldiers or six soldiers it would be soldiers that would rotate through, just like you do at your job, perhaps. You rotate through different assignments. And after a while, there would be not just 10 or 20 soldiers that would hear this sermon. There would be 100. There would be 200. Paul didn't need a big building. He had a captive audience. They would just keep coming through. And then you can imagine what would happen at the barracks. Now, who were these imperial guard? These were the cream of the royal, of the Roman army. In a sense, kind of a cross between military police and Green Berets. This was a plum assignment. There were only 9,000 of them. And they were bright, they were experienced, they were veterans, because they were, part of their job was to guard the emperor. 
So maybe a cross between MPs, the Green Berets, and the Secret Service. And they would go back into their barracks, and they would have conversations. You can imagine the first couple of weeks. What's with this crazy guy, Paul? Guy's talking all the time. I mean, doesn't he know he's a prisoner? All this, Jesus this, and Jesus that, and Jesus the other thing. I don't know if I can take it any longer. And then maybe the next month. You know, Paul makes a pretty good point when he talks about having hope. You know, sometimes I need hope. And then maybe the next month. You know, this Paul, <laughs> let me tell you about him. It's obvious to me the only chains he has are the ones on this Jesus that he keeps talking about. Because he acts like he's not in prison at all. He acts like he's a servant of someone else. And you can see this going throughout the entire barracks of the Imperial Guard. Now, this is part of God's strategy to bring the gospel to those whom you wouldn't think would hear it. Remember Philippi? Do you remember we said it was a Roman colony? Do you remember we said it was a Roman colony settled mainly by veterans? Could you just imagine the Philippian church sitting here just as you are sitting here saying to themselves, I wish we could have an opportunity to share the gospel with those soldiers that come up and down our roads, but they're always going so quickly and I'm a little bit afraid. And if only we had an in, if only we had some kind of mission to the military, if only somehow we could get a crack in the door where some soldiers would then get to know the Lord Jesus Christ and maybe they could help us to bring the gospel. I wonder how we could do that. I can't possibly think of how we could get into a group as tight-knit as the military or especially as tight-knit as the Imperial Guard. Well, God knows. He takes his church planner, his apostle, and his missionary, and he chains them to soldiers 24 hours a day. And the gospel goes forward. This is perhaps exactly what the Philippians might have been praying for. And so the question then comes to you. Has this happened to you? Have you prayed for an opportunity to minister to others and then wondered why you had to spend all your time in a hospital, not thinking that there were nurses, doctors, orderlies, other patients, other visitors to other patients, visitors to you that you might minister to? Have you ever thought, I really think what I need to do is be in full-time ministry or missions? And then you're disappointed because your finances aren't such. Perhaps you were hit in a bit of the downturn. And your retirement isn't what you expected. And you can't make payments. And you wonder, why can't I be in full-time missions at the whole time that you go to the office and walk by person after person after person who needs the gospel? You see, God knows what he's doing. God knows how to advance the gospel. God knows that the gospel is persuasive everywhere it is. It doesn't need special treatment. This is the persuasiveness of the gospel. But on top of the persuasiveness of the gospel, we see the power of the gospel. Now, again, think of this. Paul is chained to soldiers. His sermons are the talk of the palace. You can imagine it's not just soldiers after a while. It's other servants. It might be visiting senators who come to the imperial palace and chat with a guard. It would be leaders in government 
perhaps even those right up to the household of Caesar himself. Think of the influence that Paul has. And then ask yourself, how unlike our 21st century American view of influence? We think that the church is influential if we have Christian legislators, if we pass laws, if we raise huge sums of money, if we have gigantic stadiums filled with people to hear a sermon. We would never think that the way of greatest influence for the gospel would be to go to jail. And yet that's exactly what happens. Paul literally turns the Roman world upside down by being a prisoner. In several hundred years, we will see that Christianity flourishes amongst the Roman army. The seeds are planted here through the blood, sweat, and tears of Paul as he ministers the gospel. Are you trusting in that power of the gospel today? Do you trust that God can use the power of the gospel in your own heartache, in your own difficulties and challenges, in the place where you are today? Or are you concerned that God needs to get his act together and get you in a place where you can finally be useful? You see, the gospel has great power. It goes beyond the guards. Paul tells the Philippians, not only is it throughout the whole imperial guard, he says it goes to all the rest. Now that term is about as comprehensive as can be. The rest and everybody put together. Anybody else who's over there, that's where it is known that I am imprisoned for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, Paul knows that the gospel goes forward when the Lord is magnified. And so Paul does not tell Paul's story. He tells Jesus' story. And those who know his chains know that he is in chains for Jesus. Not for something that he has done that he should be ashamed of. Not for something that he should have no hope for. He is in chains for the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us that living a life in such a way to show others that we think certain things are important is critical. The way we live our lives says something to those who are around us. You all know perhaps full well the story of the missionary Jim Elliott. You know that his mission was not a success by worldly standards. He was not down there long before he was killed. And his mission stopped there. But no, it did not. Because you see, the life that he lived in front of those people and the way that he carried himself, even after his death and even in his death, brought about the conversion of some who had murdered him. The life that he lived had eternal consequences. And so it is for us. We must live lives that honor the Lord Jesus Christ, that seek to have him magnified, to seek to have the Lord's name praised as others observe us. What would you do? What would someone say about you if they followed you around 24 hours a day? What would they say is important to you? What would they say you think is worthy or of value?
That's a challenge that we all face because we never know when others are watching. We never know when an opportunity for the gospel will present itself. That's why we need to have this kind of gospel focus that shows that we have favor because of the gospel. Well, we've looked at Paul's gospel focus and we've looked at the favor that God has brought to the gospel amongst those whom it would not be expected. But we also see a second result of the advance of the gospel, Paul says. It's a gospel fearlessness. Look with me at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So we see now here a second result, and that is that the church of Jesus Christ is built up. Now, you'll notice how this breaks very nicely into an outline. Verse 13 shows us the result of the advance of the gospel out in the world, in the mission field. Verse 14 shows us the result of the advance of the gospel in the church amongst believers. You see, the gospel is not just for those people out there who don't know about Jesus. The gospel is for those of us in here who need Jesus, who need to be encouraged, who need to be equipped And so the church is then built up and Paul says to them, most of the brothers, most of the brothers in Christ have become confident because of the advance of the gospel. Paul uses this word brothers here, not just because he cares for them, though he certainly does, but he does it to describe the fact that these are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the church at Rome that he is talking about. He had wanted to do a mission to Rome. And it had seemed that that would never happen because now he's in jail. But even right now in prison, he is building up and strengthening the church at Rome. Paul is working outside the church to build up the church. You see, that's because God is always building his church. God never takes a vacation from strengthening and building his church. He is equipping his saints. He is building them up in love for one another. He is empowering them with his word and his spirit to take the gospel out into the community. And this church is built up mainly and primarily by building up their trust in the Lord. And you will notice that it's not just a few of them. It's not just the elders and the deacons at Rome. It's not just those who go to the really tight-knit Bible study at Rome who were built up. No. Most of them, a majority of them, are built up in their trust for the Lord. Their confidence is found in the Lord Himself, not in Paul. They don't stand around the fellowship hall or sit at dinner together and say, you know, that Paul, he really is a great guy. Wish I could be more like him. No, they say, we trust the Lord Jesus Christ to do what He has done. We have confidence because of what God is doing through Paul in the midst of all His challenges. And that means that the Lord is using Paul's imprisonment for the building up of the church. If you ever think that you cannot work for the Lord because you are tied down with children the bulk of the day, or because you travel a lot for your job, 
or because you don't have as many opportunities as you would like. You need to know, beloved, that Jesus Christ works through us in the midst of our lives to others around us. You see, God is not waiting for the circumstances to be right. God is producing effective Christians. That is what the Lord does. This is how the church at Rome was encouraged by the gospel. And then finally, we see that they were also emboldened by the gospel. This last phrase here, that they were confident in the Lord and they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is piling up on top of one another words of courage. He is encouraging them and seeing the blessing of it. There are no cowardly lions here in Rome. They are emboldened to preach the gospel to others. This kind of boldness is the same kind of boldness that caused Joseph of Arimathea to come and say, give me the body of Jesus. Can you imagine that kind of boldness? You weren't able to come out publicly before. And now your Lord has just been executed by the state. And you say, I want to so identify with him that I'm going to put his body in my grave. That is boldness. It is boldness without fear. It pushes past fear. And even the adverb piles on. It says it is much more bold. Now remember, these Roman Christians were ordinary people. They were people who previously were timid and afraid. And yet they were encouraged and emboldened by the work of the gospel. If you are timid or afraid today, God knows that. And he's going to equip you with boldness. He is not going to punish you for your fear or your timidity. He is working to encourage you to place circumstances in your life, your life and the lives of those around you. And you'll notice that this boldness is, leads to a centrality of the Word of God. It is a boldness to speak the Word. It is not a boldness to do other things. The Word is central to their missionary, to their ministry, excuse me. God knows they will need this boldness. Because a few years from the time that Paul writes, the one who is emperor in Rome will begin persecuting Christians. Nero. He knows that this church is going to need a special dose of boldness and without fear to survive. And God is ahead of that crisis. Preparing. Do you know this kind of boldness? Is your desire that Christ church would experience this kind of boldness in its ministry? That we would go out, not just pastors, not just elders, not just deacons. But men, women, and children alike go out and speak the word of God without fear and with boldness. If that is your hope, if that is your desire, if you long to see the Lord work that way in your life, then the Lord will indeed turn Katie upside down. Do you believe that? Praise be to God that he gives us hope, that he gives us courage, that he gives us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.